I'm going to invite you to turn with me back to the book of Acts, to the 17th chapter. I'm going to resume where we left off at Acts 17. Before I begin reading, it could be here this morning that you are on this quest to, to learn who is Jesus and what is this Bible all about. And you'd be interested in just learning an overview I remember a few years ago in teaching the youth, I came across some answers in Genesis material that, that covered the seven C's of history. And I think that's really helpful. Um, in a bit, I'll tie this into the message. The first C is creation. God has always existed. And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when he created, everything had a great design and order. We exist to glorify, to worship Him. Man and women were made in the image of God with a special distinction capable of a relationship with Him. The second C is that of corruption. Man and women used their freedom to disobey God. And when they did it, their nature and their heart became corrupted. And so their relationship with God was now violated. And even their relationship with one another brought separation. This ultimately led to the third C, catastrophe. As sin spread throughout all of the world, God brought judgment upon the earth by bringing a massive flood, preserving one family, Noah and his family. And when they repopulated the earth, this would lead to a fourth C, that of confusion. As men and women grew up and had more families, There was a day where they said, let us get to God. And so let's build this great big tower. God looked upon them and confused their language. So instead of one language, there would be all these different languages. And so from that moment, there's always been this attempt. Let us get to God. Let us try to get to him. And so God gave man the law, the Ten Commandments. And and man has been incapable of obeying that. So then he provided a sacrificial system. So instead of a man and woman having to answer for their sins by death, death would be transferred to a bull or sheep, but it would only be temporarily. This led to the fifth C, and that is Christ. Christ came, yes, during the first Christmas, and he performed miracles and offered some wonderful teachings on ethics and morality and peace of life, but that is not why he came. He came ultimately for the sixth C, which is the cross, that he came to be the permanent sacrifice, giving an answer uh, for our sins. And so our sins, the punishment of our sins, was placed upon Jesus there on the cross. And that leads to the seventh C, which is what we call consummation. There will come a day when Jesus will return and restore order to this world that has been under disorder. In a world that is upside down will be turned right side up. Currently, we live in the tension between the sixth sea, the cross, and the seventh sea, consummation. So we see reminders of this every day in the news. Whether what's happening in Portland, what's happened in Louisville yesterday, or what happened in Texas yesterday with, with all the unrest within our country. 
Maybe what's happening in your own life and in your own relationships, you are reminded that we're not quite there to the seventh seed, to the consummation. And what's so ironic about this is we can all understand that we live in a broken world. And yet there is one answer for it. It is the person of Christ. And not too many people want to hear it. And that was not only true in the year 2020 today, but it was true also in the year 60 as we are working through the book of Acts. As people are taking this message, something like the seven seas of history, and proclaiming that in the first century, there is opposition to that. Last week, Roman preached before you on Acts chapter 16, where people actually beat up some Christians, Paul and Silas, and put them in jail for proclaiming this message, just the message of forgiveness of sins so they can have a relationship restored with God. We have learned through the book of Acts that it is the church's responsibility to proclaim this message. So now let us return to the 17th chapter here as we pick up our story on the second missionary journey where Paul and Silas are continuing their effort to proclaim this gospel message. We're going to look at three different cities that they enter. There's Thessalonica, there's Berea, and then there's Athens. So let us first start with Thessalonica. Beginning in Acts chapter 17, verse 1, where it reads, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Paul and Silas are moving out of Philippi, about a hundred miles now, to a city called Thessalonica, the capital of Macedonia. They go to a synagogue, which was his custom. Look with me at verse 2. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. We see this strategy of Paul being a Jew. They go to where the Jews are. They are gathered in a a house of worship called a synagogue. And it was the practice of that day to work through a worship service. And if there were a guest there, that they would be permitted to be able to share a word from the scriptures. So they defer to Paul and he would be able to open up what the scriptures say and proclaim Jesus. As we look at verses 2 and 3, we're going to see that there's three different ways, three different verbs to describe how Paul would articulate the gospel. The first is found there in verse 2. It's the word reasoned. The word reasoned is not a formal sermon. Rather, it's it's a platform where people can ask questions and he would provide answers. It's a dialogue, not a monologue. And so we see here in verse 2 that he reasoned with them, not with his own mind or his own logic. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. They would ask a question. He would respond with an answer from the Scriptures. The the second verb of which how he proclaimed the gospel is found in verse 3. It is explaining, there it is, and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So he came with a message similar to the seven seas of history proclaiming Jesus. He is the promised one. He is the one who can save you from your sins. He died on the cross and was raised from the dead. And so the first word we saw was reasoned. The 
The second word we see here in verse 3 is the word explaining. The word explaining means just to open up and to show. When I was in seminary, I went to Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. And there I would go to chapel a few times a week, and our chapel was held in the George Truett Auditorium. George Truett was a renowned Baptist preacher. One day, one went to hear George Truett preach. And as he preached, he walked away and says, I just heard the great George Truett preach a sermon. And you know what? I understood every word that he preached. It was as if that person that went to that church service that day was surprised by that. They thought that this renowned preacher would speak over the heads of those in the congregation. But he spoke with simple, plain words for everyone to understand. And that's what Paul did as he would go to the synagogues. He would speak in such a way that everyone could understand. He would explain to them. The, the third verb here to describe as preaching is the word prove. We see that in verse 3 as well. The word prove means that he's just giving evidence to place beside, to set before that indeed Jesus did come to die on the cross for their sin and be raised from the life, raised to life. Now, Paul would eventually write letters to this church in Thessalonica. Let me read to you a few verses. In verse Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he said to them, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Backing up to chapter 16, They came from Philippi, beat up physically, thrown in jail, probably beat up a little bit emotionally and spiritually as well. Now they come to Thessalonica, and God has given them boldness to proclaim the gospel. And so what is the response? Under Thessalonica, I think we have a church and a charge. The first thing is we have a church. Look with me at verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. So over the course of three Sabbaths, there are people that embrace this message of the gospel and become followers of Jesus. So then we read in verse 16. I'm sorry, verse 5. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason also received them, and they were all acted against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason, the rest, they let them go. So yes, there were some people that embraced this message and formed a church, but they also charged them out of town. There were some people who received the word and some people who rejected the word. And listen to what the accusers say. They try to find Paul and Silas, but they can't. 
Uh, So they go to Jason's house because he was staying with Jason. And they drag him out and they say, these men, this Paul and Silas, are turning the world upside down. What a thing to be accused of. But to speak more accurately, it would have been more fitting for them to say, they're actually turning the world upright. Because the world is upside down because of the corruption. And now they are proclaiming the gospel, and now things are falling back into order for those who are followers of Jesus. Do you know that God has this divine order for our lives? That that we were made in the image of God? We were created for a relationship with God, to find our joy in Him? And that there is actually order, and He made us a, a particular gender, a particular way, and we are to remain that way? Do you, do you realize that a, a man is, is to be drawn to a person, a woman? And that doesn't mean that there might be temptations to, to be attracted to someone of the same gender, but we're not to act on that? And do you know that within a marriage there are particular roles for a man and a woman? There is a man that is to lead, he is to provide, he is to protect And he is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. And that a a, a woman, this is not really popular today, but it's to be a helpmate to come alongside and help fulfill her husband. And that that is the roles, the design that God has given to them and in a marriage. And that the greatest priority for a husband is relationship with God and then his wife. And then after that, the children. And the children are to honor their father and mother. And that there is roles even in the workplace where there's always a supervisor, a boss, and the employee is to honor and to see how they can please and, and make that organization more profitable. There's even, there's even some order within our society where there's civil government, where citizens are to respect the laws passed as long as they don't violate the scriptures. And so there's this order being restored to these people's lives. They're not only a accused of turning the world upside down, but of proclaiming another king, Jesus. And once again, what a wonderful thing to be accused of, that there is a great king, and his name is Jesus. And so they say to Jason, give us some money to assure that Paul and Silas will not return. And Paul and Silas do not return. So let's just do a summary of what we have here in the first nine verses of Acts 17. We have Paul and Silas on three consecutive weeks preaching the gospel. And what is the result of that? A church. A church. You think of the power of the Word of God. Of three consecutive Sabbaths just proclaiming, reasoning, proving, explaining what the Word of God is, and the result of that is a church. A church that would be written to in First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians, and I'll say it this way, a church that would actually multiply as well. A couple of years ago, we, we've got a, a couple that looks after us. I've known them for nearly 20 years, uh, Charlie and Loretta. Uh, they're just a wonderful couple. And whenever they visit... They never visit empty-handed. They'll come with venison. They'll come with bear. They'll come with elk. They'll come with banana bread. I mean, this is the kind of people you want visiting you. You know what I'm saying? And one particular fall, 
they arrived in October or so, and they came with a bunch of pumpkins. I think there was about four or five pumpkins, one for each of our boys. And there they stood on our front porch. And as the cold weather blew in in that autumn, eventually one of those pumpkins spilled over into what we call a flower bed, which is just a place where the hostas are and there's a bunch of wood chips. We just lost track of it as, as the snow blew in. And then we went into the spring and we went into the summer. And you know what happened? A plant emerged from those wood chips. And a flower blossomed. And it occurred to me, this is a pumpkin that had come here from last fall. And it has made its way through these wood chips. And my mind went back to that picture as I was reading Acts 17 this week. It's just as hardy as that pumpkin seed is. How much infinitely more hardy is the gospel seed that it can be planted And you can have this church form that can be chased out of town, but you'll have not only a church, but a multiplying church that exists. And so I would just, I'd ask you to contemplate. If God's word could do that in a city that was violent towards the gospel, what would happen if you planted God's word in your heart, in your sin of gossip, your sin of anger, your sin of uh, bound up sin? Would he not bring freedom in your life? Just taking the word of God and hiding it in your heart. Well, that, let me just read to you this very encouraging verse here from 1 Thessalonians 1.8. When Paul wrote back to the church, he says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. The gospel seed over three weeks has been planted in your life, and now We hear about the faith that you have everywhere. We hear about how God is working in your life. And so are we hearing, are we applying the word of God in our life? Secondly, let's go to the second city that we see beginning in verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue, as you would expect. Now these Jews were more noble than in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So unlike Thessalonica, where there was hostility towards the word of God, in Berea, there is this eager examining of what God's word is saying. Verse 12, many of them, therefore, in in light of hearing this gospel from Paul and Silas, seeing this gospel in the scriptures, many, therefore, believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. I've called this an oasis. There are times when we are sharing the gospel. There are times when we are doing the hard work of ministry. And and it's as if we're in Thessalonica or Philippi. And it's just hard work. But then there are other times where we get this oasis, where we're in Berea, and people are actually responding to the word of God. And it's just like putting gas in your tank. And, and you can go for miles on that. We, we had an experience of this in March as we were back in Senegal. And, and you might say, man, I'm, I'm getting tired of hearing about Senegal. Well, I would tell you I'm very intentional of sharing stories like this because I'm hoping in 2021 some of you will go with us back to Senegal. When Jim and I went, we went out to an island 
there in West Africa where the gospel seed had been scattered and many had received it. And now we were following up to find that a church was forming. And as we would go, there were people there with their Bibles on their laps. And as the missionaries would share a word, they were eager to find out, is this what the Bible actually says? I can think of one woman in particular with these little circle glasses. And and I could see her squinting and reading the words and asking the missionary, is that what this says? Is that what this says? And oh, how refreshing that is to be a, a Bible study teacher, a Sunday school teacher, a teacher of even children and students, to see that they are receptive to the word. I give you that insight. If you really want to encourage your Sunday school teacher, your Bible teacher, just apply the Word of God. Tell them about how God is working in your life. Tell them that when that Word was shared in a class today or in that sermon today, that, that really made an impact on my life. That is very encouraging to a leader, to a teacher, to the person within your Sunday school class. So there you have this oasis, but then a chase. This oasis leads to a chase, because look with me at verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul, brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So word gets out that the troublemakers from Thessalonica are now in Berea, and Paul flees. And they send him on a boat, and they send him to Athens. That will be our third city. Let's look at this. Verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. I don't know how much traveling you do or how much you like to do. Given the choice of of traveling to a major city or a national park, that's really easy for me. Take me to the mountains, take me to the streams, take me to the cool, crisp waters. But there are times where I have gone to a city And I can think of our family when we went to Chicago a number of years ago. And that, to me, is like another country. Uh, There's these beautiful museums. There's that Sheds Aquarium, and we're along the banks of Lake Michigan. We can see Soldier Field where the bears play. We can go downtown, and, and, and it's just some impressive buildings. And I'm just being honest with you. When I go to a place like that, I am captivated by the architecture. And I might say, ooh, But when Paul went to Athens, which was a shadow of what it once was, by now the Romans are ruling, it's not the Greek superpower, buildings are probably a little bit more decrepit. Instead of being captivated by the buildings and going, ooh, he is seeing all the idols and he is going, ah, and his spirit is provoked. He is grieved by all the idolatry that he sees. One man who visited Athens about 50 years later from this said, it is easier to meet a god or a goddess on the main street of Athens than a man. Well, verse 17 says, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and on the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. 
So, to no one's surprise, his heart is broke over what he observes in Athens, and this burden compels him to preach. So he preaches first in the synagogues, and then he goes out where other people are, non-Jews, to the marketplace. Verse 18 says, Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with them. The two predominant philosophies at that time was one that pursued pleasure, the Epicureans, and one that just pursued uh, enduring life. That was the Stoics. And some of them says, what does this babbler wish to say? Others says, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. The word babbler here in Greek means it's the, it's the concept of a bird going out and plucking seeds on the ground. It's as if to say, he is going out and he's getting an idea over here, he's getting an idea over here, and he's getting an idea over here, and he's attempting just to bring them together and assort them. So then it says here in verse 20, rather verse 19, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. This would have been this large structure where people would have gathered. And they said, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So think Madison. Think Berkeley, California. Think Boulder, Colorado, where these centers of higher education, where people, think tanks, are getting together and they're offering an assortment of ideas. These are the elites. These are the educators. These are the people that are making laws. And now Paul has an invitation to speak. So in verse 22, it says this. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now we had just read that as he was in Athens, his spirit was provoked. He was broken over all the idolatry that he saw. So instead of coming out with the hammer, he comes out with a compliment. Hey, listen, I've been here in Athens and I have observed that you are a very religious person people. He might have wanted to say, listen, you are all idolaters and you will burn in a lake of fire for eternity. But if he would have did that, no one would have listened to him. So he comes in a very tactful way. And then he proclaims his message, a very God-centered message. The first thing he says in verse 24 is that God is creator. Look with me. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in the temples made by man. Hey, I have observed this, this statue that says to an unknown God, let me tell you about a God that you do not know. This God created everything and he is not reduced to a temple. Verse 25 says that this God is the provider nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind and breath and everything. God provides life. In verses 26 and 29, 
We see that God is ruler. Look with me at 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. If you mark your Bible, circle the words one man. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. If there is one message, one truth that needs to be lifted up today, this idea that we are all from one man, man and woman, Adam and Eve, would be very helpful, would it not? That we might have different colors skin, we might come from different ethnic groups from all around the world, but our origins are in one man. We all come from Adam and Eve, and that's what he is proclaiming there. It says, having determined periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he actually is not far from each one of us. This God whom you don't know, the one who created everything, the one who provides for you, the one who rules, he is not far from you. You can know him if you would like. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for indeed, for we are indeed his offspring. So now we see Paul actually quotes, not from the Bible, but from a poet there in Athens. He was acquainted with the culture. Then we also read here in verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. And then he concludes the sermon in verses 30 through 31 by underscoring that God is Savior. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So there is this call to repentance There is this preaching that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Now, we ought not to think that this was all of the message. If someone sat down and read this, it might be about two minutes long. It is a summary of that sermon. The Athens were too proud to learn. Let us look at their response here in verse 32. Now, when they heard of this resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. Verse 34 says, But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Aragabite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. So some mocked, some wanted to hear more, and others believed. So I would just put this before you again. If this is true during the first century, as the gospel is being shared, that some receive it, some mock it, and some say, let me hear it again at another time, would we expect it to be any different today? I don't think any of us would say that the gospel is as hostile in the first century as it is today. Today, I think in the Green Bay community, there will be people that will politely listen to the gospel. I don't know that any of us will get dragged to jail and beaten 
for sharing the gospel as we see in Acts 16, or chased out of town like we see in two different occasions here in Acts 17. So let me just give you, before we take the Lord's Supper here, let me just give you three applications. Number one, there is more than one way to share the gospel. Maybe you have thought, yeah, I'm going to share the gospel with a person that's a perfect stranger. I'm going to sh- talk to them for about 5 or 10 or 15 minutes. And that is what it looks like to share the gospel. But we see in Thessalonica where there is this time period of Paul consistently sharing the gospel. And over that time, the gospel seed was able to take root. You know, over the years, I found this little book here. Maybe I've mentioned this before. It is a classic by John Stott. It's called Basic Christianity. You know, not everything new is better than what we had from the past. Here's a book that was written in the 50s. And I can think of a time at the YMCA where I was playing basketball with someone. And, and, and that person expressed interest in the gospel. And I shared the gospel with them, but it didn't sound like they really understood what I was saying. So I said, how about, would you be willing over the course of a a number of weeks, would you be willing to sit down with me and work through this classic book called Basic Christianity? We found it very helpful where he could ask me questions and and I could do my best to respond. I can think of a few youth pastors that we've had and Jed and Alex that have have taken people through this very book themselves and, and have found it very, very helpful. So that's one application, I think. There's more than one way to share the gospel. Number two, when the gospel is shared, a response is required. A response is required when the gospel is shared. It might be no. It might be, let me hear more of that. It might be that you are mocked. I can think of a time where I was with one of the men in our church. We were up at McDonald's on, on Shano and, and military. And while we were just opening up a, a Christian book, a man came up to us and says, you don't actually believe that stuff, do you? And he was trying to mock us for our faith. And we're like, actually we do. Yeah, we do believe this. And as we see here in Thessalonica and Berea and even Athens, when that gospel seed goes forward, there will be people who respond. And then finally, the third application is a burden leads to sharing. Uh, When we look in Athens... We see that, hey, uh, Paul is going to wait for his buddies to arrive from Berea, but instead of just kicking it in a hotel room and just relaxing and licking his wounds from getting beat up in Philippi, he's just going to say, let me just go check this place out. And instead of doing some sightseeing, he allows God to work on his heart. And he gets a burden for Athens. And this leads him to go out and share the gospel. You know, this past week... Um, I'd packed a lot of the week. We had a vacation the week before, so there was a number of meetings, some of them in the evening. And, and on Thursday morning, we had an early morning meeting. And, and, and by Thursday afternoon, I could feel myself getting pretty tired. And here I am reading Acts 17, and I'm like, man, I can't help but think of while Paul in Athens, how he was just out there in the city, and how God used that exposure to just... Give him a heart for that city. So I decided to pack up my Bible and I loaded up in my pilot and we drove downtown. And right behind the Titletron Brewery and, and the Fox River, there's a little parking lot there. And I, I pulled into that 
and decided to take my Bible, and I said, I'm just going to walk along the Fox River here, and I'm just going to read Acts 17. And as I was walking down that sidewalk, about five or ten minutes into just reading the very same passage I'm preaching on, a man came up to me and says, you must be religious. I'm Muslim. I would like to teach you something about Islam. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll let you speak, and then you give me an opportunity to speak. We had that arrangement. Now this man, just full disclosure, he was, I believe, homeless. There was another man right beside us that I believe was heavily intoxicated. There was this big bottle of vodka that was, I think, completely empty, or there was just a little trace. But there I was with these two men. A Muslim was a man named Omar from East Africa, and he began to speak and, and tried to persuade me that Jesus was actually a Muslim. And after he was done, I said, well, now, Omar, now it's my turn. And so then we just, just opened up the gospel. And I didn't do the seven seas of history, but, but talked to him about God being the creator. As a Muslim, he knew that there was a God that created. He also knew of Moses, and he knew about the law. And so we just talked about the law, and I, I asked him to compare his life with the Ten Commandments. And he, he said, I've lied, I've stolen, I've, I've taken God's name in vain. And as we worked through that law together, eventually he understood that he was on his way to hell. And there wasn't anything he could do of that. And then we talked about Jesus. And he said something really surprising to me. He said, Muhammad is dead, but Jesus is still alive today. And so as we we spoke, I just urged him to, to place his faith in what Jesus has done for him. You know, as I walked away from that, He didn't trust Christ. In fact, he even said this, if you really want to bless me, Chad, you will become a Muslim. And I said, well, that that is not going to happen. As I began to make my way over the Nitschke Bridge on the other side of the river, I just began to think, something happened here. As Paul's spirit was, was provoked, I thought, you know, I, I kind of got a burden here for these two guys. And I, I thought of that, that bottle of vodka and a, and a holy hatred and anger towards that alcohol just kind of rose up within me of what alcohol does to people. I thought of the false doctrine of Islam and, and that just began to run through my mind and heart. And then as I got to the other side of the river, I began to walk along a place where there's restaurant and they were drinking their Diet Cokes and their garden salad and their designer sunglasses. And I thought to myself, these people need Jesus as well. And as I was walking down the path and I'd hear ding, ding and coming on your left and there would be a bike that would pass me on the left and I'd see these bikers, many of them retired, driving by and I thought, well, these people need Jesus as well. And just by being out there and and reading the scriptures and saying, God, show me the city as you see it, I could say, to some measure, the Spirit was provoked within me to have more of a burden for the city. I came home and I told my wife about that. And I thought, you know, we have been speaking on Wednesday nights. We haven't met on a Wednesday night for a long, long time. I was talking with one of our men a few weeks ago. I said, you know, it'd be nice just to have a prayer meeting on a Wednesday night. Not, not because there's a crisis going on, but just to pray. But then it occurred to me, why don't we take that prayer meeting and just take it outside the church and to pray for people within our city? So here's what I'm going to do, and I'm going to extend an invitation to you. 
Melody and I and the boys at 6.30 this Wednesday. That's when we usually would gather before the, the virus hit. We're going to go to that same spot. Right behind the Titletown Brewery and right in front of the Fox River, there's a parking lot there. We're going to park our vehicle. If you want to join us, feel free to do that. And we're going to go and we're just going to pray in that area. Maybe we'll go over the bridge. Maybe we'll go down Broadway and say, God, would you, would you show us the city as you see it? And maybe God would give us opportunity to pray for people as they pass by. And maybe even to share the gospel with people. Now, you might not live in Green Bay. Maybe you live in De Pere. And it would be just as convenient for you to, to go downtown De Pere. Maybe there's some people within the church that you could partner up and just go downtown De Pere and pray on Wednesday evening at 6.30. Maybe you live in Pulaski. And, and it would be just as easy for you, instead of driving into Green Bay, maybe God would give you a heart for your own city of Pulaski. Uh, maybe, maybe you live in Krakow, and, and you have a heart for the, the post office there in Krakow, and you would just march around there. And if that's you, Ron and Judy, you, you certainly can do that as well. My point is, I don't want to over-program it. I'm just saying, isn't this what we're supposed to be doing? And as I read in the book of Acts, I, and I'm just going to be real honest with you, what we see in the book of Acts as we see a desire to see the name of Jesus honored and spread. And so when there is a church plant, when it's just getting started, there is a desperation. If people don't come, if people don't hear about Jesus, we will not have a church. But you know what happens in the life of a church in time? Once you get to a certain amount of people, you're like, hey, we are a church. And now we've got a savings account. And now we don't need to be desperate anymore about our church because we're established. The church can then, instead of focusing on reaching people, can turn inward and begin to argue over our own comforts. And that becomes more and more dangerous the older a church gets. And so we need to come back to the book of Acts and we need to say, actually, this is what the church looks like. They are going out and getting a heart for their community and then they are sharing the gospel with the people of that community. So would you join me? I don't even know what the weather is going to be like. As far as I know, a tornado could come through at 6.30 on Wednesday. But I'm just saying, we're going to be there, and and we would love it if you would join us. Maybe you're watching at home. It'll actually be safer to pray outside than than inside, won't it? As As I share that, I'm aware that there are multiple reasons why we don't go out and share the gospel. Sometimes it's because I don't know how or I'm afraid of what I would say. But one of the main reasons is because we have sin in our life. So in preparation for the Lord's Supper, if you have not already prepared your heart, there is nothing magical about the juice and the bread. They're not going to solve your sin problem. Jesus has solved your sin problem by going on the cross for you and raising from the dead. But I do want to provide a few moments of silence for you to just, if you got unconfessed sin in your life, to confess that and get your heart ready for the Lord's Supper. So once you allow the Spirit to search your heart, if there's unconfessed sin, do that now so that you can take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. Father, we thank you for the Bible. Thank you for this chapter that just reminds us again what a, what a wonderful book for us to go through 
in, a, in days like this of a church that just continues to persevere in times when there seems to be opposition to the gospel message. They just continue to do it. And may that same fortitude be in the backbone of Highland Crest, that we would just persevere, continue to be out sharing the gospel. And thank you that what we proclaim is represented in the Lord's Supper of Jesus coming in bodily form and, and offering his life for us, shedding his blood, that we might have a relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.